Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, according to the new rules, anybody coming into Canada from a country other than the U.S. will have to be tested on arrival, then isolated, and await the results. Why is the U.S. exempt from these new travel restrictions? We'll talk about that. Opposition MPs are getting ready to review the Liberals' latest package of pandemic aid. Is Finance Minister Christian Freeland ready to be on the hot seat? And apparently Canada's tight labor market is forcing some companies to accommodate the unvaccinated. Leah Nord, Senior Director of Workforce Strategies and Inclusive Growth for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Driving across the border to the States may actually become a more attractive option for Canadians looking to head south. Uh, there are new travel rules now in effect in the United States. Global's Tina Trujanti has some details. The changes were announced last week, about the same time Canada and some other countries prohibited travel from 10 countries after Omicron was identified in South Africa. Starting today, those flying into the U.S., including Canadians, have to be tested for COVID-19 no more than a day before, regardless of vaccination status. Before this kicked in, negative results were accepted within 72 hours of a flight. Something President Joe Biden didn't mention with these changes? The land border. As it stands, testing is not required for Canadians driving in. In an interview just yesterday, Dr. Anthony Fauci indicated more research is still needed, but at this point, the Omicron variant doesn't look severe. Still, though, we do need to be careful. Tina Trajani, Global News. So uh, it's going to have an impact on a lot of people, especially when we're heading into the holiday season. Christmas time is that time when a lot of people like to visit family and friends. Didn't get a whole lot of that last Christmas because of the lockdown that was in place. It's, uh, well, no lockdown as of yet, uh, but it's just going to deter people. And, uh, well, some experts are suggesting maybe maybe we're overreacting to this new variant. I want to bring uh, Dr. Jha into the conversation. And Dr. Jha is an epidemiologist, also founding director of the Center for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital. Doctor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Let me ask you right off the bat then, because we heard Dr. Fauci uh, on the, the news shows, of course, on CBS yesterday, uh, saying that, well, it looks as if uh, this new variant is maybe not as, as severe as the Delta variant. Uh, which I'll immediately sit back. I'm sure you saw some of this on social media reactions say, well, then why are we putting all these restrictions in place? Are we being overly cautious? Or are we overreacting to, to what we know so far, doctor? I think Tony uh, thought she jumped the gun a little bit that we have uh, the early suggestions, uh, meaning all the people who've been infected with the Omicron don't seem to have very severe cases or hospitalizations, but it's still early. So we have to wait another week or so, and we'll have evidence on whether those that were infected are showing up in hospitals at greater rates. I think the prudent thing uh, is to be concerned that it might be bad, um, but uh, not to make any judgments until we have the numbers and the science in. And this is really a case of numbers, isn't it, Doctor? I mean, I, I don't mean to compare this because I, I never thought I'd be sitting here referencing Donald Trump as a point of reference here. But I can remember him saying, hey, we only have four cases, of, you know, when the first variant stayed about a year, a year and a half ago. What's the big deal? Uh, well, I know there's only a handful of cases. I think 10 confirmed cases in the States right now. But as you mentioned, this is these are early days, aren't they? These are early days, and we have to look at what's going on with the epidemiology. So in the U.S., which is of most concern to us in terms of imported uh, cases, it's the Delta variant in unvaccinated populations that's really driving the increases. The U.S. still has a 1,000 deaths a day, mostly among unvaccinated populations with the Delta variant. Now, the Delta variant, you could think of kind of like the Amazon of the, the virus business. It kind of dominates the market. And along comes Omicron, and it's trying to make uh, some headway. But it's not quite clear whether Omicron will be able to outcompete Delta. Again, we need more evidence from various settings as to how transmissible it is. In South Africa, Omicron really took off very uh, sharply, in part because there wasn't as much Delta as there is here. So this, these are the things that we're waiting uh, to see. I think the strategy for testing, um, and particularly testing at the border, was really poorly thought out. There was no need to ban travel from South Africa. South Africa has excellent labs and you get credible results uh, if you get tested. I think it's fair to say, all right, you move that window of testing from uh, 72 hours to 24 hours. That's reasonable. And um, But 
the really important thing here would be to really expand um, self-testing and home testing. So what I'd like to see is if the Canadian government is concerned about this, mail every Canadian home a pack of 10 rapid tests and say, look, you if you've been traveling or if you've had some exposure or you're at all concerned, just test yourself and then act accordingly, report it or isolate. I think most Canadians would do that very responsibly. That would be the main way, I believe, of making sure that um, we, we've got sensible strategies that keep the borders open, families um, able to meet. Um, I, I want to go and ski in Vermont at the end of, uh, of uh, December with my brother-in-law, so I'd very much like to have these inconveniences removed. And you can marry that with the science if you do it sensibly, which would be for in-flights, fair enough to have 24-hour testing. And then for everyone else, just give lots of home rapid tests that people can monitor themselves. Well, and here in Ontario, of course, the uh, Minister of Education said he was going to send those home with the kids, I guess, for their, their winter break, which is not a bad idea. We hope they use them. But let me ask you again, I want to just go back to your point earlier, Doctor, about, about travel bans in particular. Even in the first wave, when the, the bans were put in place, there was a lot of uh, conjecture there that this is not going to do any good. This is closing the, you know, the barn door after the horses have got out. I mean, you know, to suggest that South Africa is where this started, so let's ban travel from South Africa, uh, seems to be a, a little off base here. I mean, because it's all over the place. It's in about 15 or 20 different countries right now. It may have first been noticed in South Africa, but they haven't even confirmed that that's where it started, have they? That's correct. And in fact, cases were reported earlier, uh, but meaning they were found later, but the date of the cases was earlier in the Netherlands and in Nigeria. And now it's in 40 countries, uh, and some of it is not linked to travel or not clearly to travel. So the, the variant is taking place, and it's, it's, if you're looking for this particular variant, then you will find it. There might be other variants for which we're not looking so much, but the key strategy remains, make sure everyone has two doses at the minimum. In some selected populations, yeah, they should get the booster, but the booster isn't essential to protect yourself from hospitalization or death. I believe that in most Canadians, except if you're immunocompromised or elderly, then two doses will give you pretty good protection against uh, hospitalization and, and death. And then the strategy has to be to get sensible testing before travel, uh, and then lots of rapid testing at home. We really sh- I see no reason the government of Canada has procured something like 40 million tests. So they've got enough to think about sending it out to pretty much every home. So send them out and let people use them sensibly um, to be able to figure out if they've been exposed. And if so, they'll act accordingly. I'm, I'm confident most Canadians will be careful and report their results or isolate or take steps for it. They won't abuse them. Here in Ontario, of course, they've changed the uh, the qualifications now for that booster shot, that third shot. Uh, it's more encompassing now than it, than it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'm still not eligible, apparently. I guess I have to wait until January because my last dose, I think, was in July uh, so that six-month thing, I guess, still applies. How important are those booster shots? Because, again, that's a, a, another element now where some doctors are suggesting, look, at not as important as, as some people might think. As you just mentioned, if you've had the two shots, you're still in pretty good shape here. The important thing would be to reach roughly the, what is it, about a million Canadians over age 50 that still haven't gotten vaccinated. Uh, it's a little less than that now, the number. But the the main concern we have are hospitalizations and deaths and uh, people being put on into the intensive care. Those are mostly occurring in the 50-year-olds that are unvaccinated or 50 and older. So the real focus has to be to get vaccines out to those populations. And I fear a little bit of the messaging uh, hasn't been clear. It's if people think who are vaccine hesitant think, oh, look, and I'm going to have to have three of these. You're going to turn around and say, I'm going to need 14 of these. And this thing doesn't work. We need to be very clear to say that the two doses will probably save your life uh, versus if you're uh, uh, unvaccinated. And really emphasize that. I think what we all have to do as Canadians, I've been preaching this, is 
find anyone you know of your age or your group that is unvaccinated and talk to them and try to convince them to get a vaccine. Take them out for a beer, whatever you need to do to try to get them uh, vaccinated. That's our real focus, and we shouldn't lose sight of that would be the best way to protect our system and keep schools and hospitals and everything else working. Well, let's expand that for a second, if we could, Doctor. Uh, I, I, there was a phrase that you used months ago when you and I were talking, uh, 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 paraphrasing, and basically you said, we can't be safe until everyone is safe, which essentially means we've got to spread the vaccinations out as far as we can. And I'm looking, for instance, at some of the rates here. And, and you know, in Canada, we haven't done too badly. I think overall, across the country, we're a little over 70%. In Africa, it's only 7%. Uh, now, that's a huge continent. I get that. I mean, it's, it's not a fair comparator. But that indicates to me that we're not doing a very good job of distributing vaccines. As you said, as long as there's going to be parts of the world where the, where the, the, vi- the variants can actually fester and, and mutate, uh, we're, we're still in d- deep water here, aren't we? Omicron has proven that exactly right. Many of us were saying this is going to happen, and uh, it has happened. And rather than just saying, I told you so, I think the real strategy should be to get a global program. Uh, It'll cost billions of dollars, but uh, it'll be worth every penny that would vaccinate all adults worldwide. And we've got, I mean, there's huge uh, progress in vaccines. We should remember that. Eight billion doses have been delivered and three and a half billion people have been fully vaccinated. That's just remarkable. But it's really unequal. As you said, uh, only 5% of Africans, a uh, billion people have been vaccinated. And there's 3.5 billion that are, been, that are still left unvaccinated. If we can focus on unvaccinated populations here in Canada and globally, that would be the way out of the pandemic, along with much, much uh, expanded testing and simple testing. So, and again, I don't want to get too deeply into the epidemiology. That's, that's your wheelhouse. <laughs> but, but for everyone who's unvaccinated, uh, they run the risk not only of, of, of testing positive and actually acquiring one of these, these viruses, but once that virus is in them, there's the possibility that it can mutate within them too. So they're really they're acting as, 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 I guess, as not just a catalyst for this, but also as a host for a possible future mutation. That's right. And that is the worry. Unvaccinated populations in the U.S. are the ones that, uh, if Omicron takes hold, they'll be the ones that'll be whacked by it. And if you even people uh, have noted that, well, there's a fair number of cases, but not so many hospitalizations occurring in vaccinated. And you think, oh, what, does this stuff not work? No, what it is, is when unvaccinated people are mixing in particularly indoor places with vaccinated people, uh, that's where the trans- the infection spreads. So the vaccine doesn't give you 100% protection against infection, but your chances of getting infected if you're vaccinated are really from contact with an unvaccinated. If we've got a bunch of vaccinated people in the room, we're not going to be spreading infection to each other. Uh, and that's one of the myths, I guess, that gets spread by some of the people who are opposed to the vaccinations uh, to simply say, you know, what, how come people are still getting sick? I mean, if you take a vaccine against typhoid and you put yourself in a population where everybody has typhoid, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get it. It may not be as severe, but you're still going to get it. I mean, th- n- there's nothing is bulletproof here, is it? That's right. But uh, it's uh, it's not bulletproof against uh, cases. And among the vaccinated who do get um, COVID, they tend to be much more mild, and they don't transmit as others uh, as much as unvaccinated. But it's close to 100% protection against dropping dead or being hospitalized, which is just a miracle. I mean, this, uh, the vaccines are ridiculously effective against dropping dead or uh, being put on a ventilator. And that really is, the, when we went into this pandemic, our goal was to protect our healthcare system and try to have life as normal as possible. Um, and the vaccines have delivered their part. We need to do our part and get the unvaccinated vaccinated. And I think the government needs to do its part by really ramping up uh, rapid testing, including home testing uh, for, for every Canadian. Make it as easy as going and buying an aspirin uh, at the drugstore uh, or at the, you know, even the local store. Uh, we really need to be thinking about testing in that way. 
And and I guess we need to have a, a little reality check here too, don't we? As much as we're talking about the new variant here, Doctor, ninety nine percent of the cases I've, of new cases, I guess that have been identified, are still the Delta variant here in North America. Uh, it's still with us, and it's it's still spreading. That's right, and it's driven mostly by the unvaccinated populations in the U.S. Um, they're still in the midst of a big Delta wave in the U.S. with uh, you know a thousand deaths a day, and. Um, You've seen the statistics that the difference between Trump voting counties and Biden voting counties is extraordinary. There's Mm -hmm. a 20 percent difference in vaccination rates and a 10 percent difference in death rates in between those two uh, settings. And this is just extraordinary that uh, we that the blockage against uh, vaccines done for political reasons is just killing people in the U.S. and prolonging the pandemic. Well, we've got to stay vigilant about this. Uh, doctor, I'm, I'm hoping, got my fingers crossed, that uh, that you and your brother-in-law can hit the slopes in uh, Vermont. I hear snow's beautiful this time of year. Uh, and if we all do our part, maybe that's going to happen for you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for the time today, Doctor. Always a pleasure. All the best, Bill. Take care. Dr. Prajad Jha, of course, epidemiologist at uh, St. Michael's Hospital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. MPs get back to work today uh, with some heavy lifting going on in Ottawa. As a matter of fact, uh, MPs are going to be ready to review the Liberals' latest uh, aid package for uh, the pandemic aid. Uh, Jerry Smith has some details for us. Federal Finance Minister may well find herself on the hot seat. The 12-member House of Commons Finance Committee will meet with the goal to get the aid bill closer to a final vote before the Christmas break. As part of a compromise to fast-track the legislation, the Liberals agreed to have Chrystia Freeland sit for at least two hours of questioning before the committee. And that gives opposition members a chance to grill her about issues facing the domestic economy and the government's pandemic response overall. Jerry Smith, The Canadian Press. So how beneficial is this going to be and how uh, productive uh, is this going to be? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Professor Wayne Petrosi. Professor Petrosi is in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, glad you could join us today. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're more than welcome. Uh, you know, when you get a minister, of the, especially a finance minister, in front of a committee like this, uh, i, I got to assume right off the bat that they're probably going to stray a little bit from the, uh, the the pandemic aid package to a whole bunch of other things. I'm, I'm guessing the word inflation is going to come up more than once in the conversation, Professor. Yeah, it certainly is. And uh, I, I think it, it'll be, if the Conservatives continue down the line that their finance critic has been walking for the last number of months, I think he refers it to just inflation. Mm-hmm. This n- nonsensical claim that inflation is only happening in Canada, and therefore, and it's the Liberal government's fault. That's not productive. It, it, it's not factually correct. It'll just lead them down a rabbit hole and waste valuable time that otherwise could be spent on the committee probing the government's approach. And, and you're right. I mean, that's a talking point that, that Mr. Polyev has, has been battering. Even his boss, though, Aaron O'Toole, says that's not the case, that it's a global problem and that has to be dealt with as such. Uh, I assume he's probably going to stay to stick to his guns, Mr. Polyev, necessarily. But you're right. When it's going to be fascinating to see how the other members, especially the conservative members of the Finance Committee, uh, start to look at this. Because uh, there's not a whole lot to do here. Let's talk a little bit about the aid package, first of all. Uh, $7.4 billion pandemic aid bill is what's essentially before them. Uh, I don't know that they're going to do too much in the way of taking away from this, Professor. I imagine that the pressure they're probably going to get is from the NDP to enhance some of these bills or some of these packages. No, that's certainly the case. It, it, it's, I think, very unlikely that they would uh, play around with particular aspects of it. I think certainly the government and the government should be probed on uh, bearing in mind the now very recent upsurge in cases associated with a new variant. Um, we want assurances to the government that, in fact, there's some flexibility here and an ability to adjust going forward if it's required. Well, and you saw that, didn't I guess, with the first wave uh, of the pandemic aid package way back when, uh, when they introduced and introduced to us to the CERB program. I mean, I think the first thing the NDP did was decide that's not enough. And and the, there was a consensus, at least between those two parties anyway, to do that. And we're already starting to hear that, aren't we, with some of these aid packages? Because I know there were some people, especially within the NDP caucus, uh, that were suggesting that the, the, the packages that the Liberals are proposing right now uh, don't go far enough and don't encompass some of the people that may still be impacted by, by COVID. That's certainly the case, but, you know, uh, I'm sure the government's line, gonna, line is going to be, listen, 
we're being prudent, and prudence is required given the amount of money that's flown out the door the last two years. And we are nonetheless mindful and able to adjust if circumstances change. Let me ask you about some numbers here. And I, I know that this is you know a great tool that politicians used to love uh, to justify their, their standard, their policy on an issue like this. Uh, I know the New Democrats, to your point, is suggesting right now that, look at, you know, the package as it stands right now is only limited to uh, people that have been subjected to lockdowns. Uh, they're still going to receive income support. Uh, many others who qualified last year probably won't. But you juxtapose that, Professor, with uh, some of the numbers we're getting right now that's suggesting that the economy is starting to rebound. It, it, the problem here is that people, it's not that people can't find work. It, it's a lot of employers can't find employees at this stage. Uh, so is that program even really necessary for those people? No, I think that's certainly the case. I mean, the, the unemployment numbers last week were uh, spectacular in terms of the number of job, new jobs created uh, in, in, in the past month. And the unemployment rate itself is down to pretty much what it was before the pandemic, around 6%. So you're right. There, uh, the, there are issues now more associated with some inflexibility within the labor market. Uh, rather than we have people walking the streets unable to find work. So you weigh that against what's going on here, and you've got to assume, because the Conservatives, aside from Mr. Polio, but all the Conservatives in this caucus, and especially on this committee, have always maintained that too many people are getting benefits, that you need to narrow it down a little bit. It seems to be an attempt by the Liberals to actually accommodate that. Uh, I suspect that is the case. They have been mindful, you know, <laughs> Governing parties are always worried about flanks, uh, their left flank and their right flank. And, and certainly, uh, I, I think you'll see Christia Freeland in, in her appearance um, actually emphasize the right flank and shoring that up and making sure that conservative criticisms really get blunted. Because the NDP are, are basically, at least on a philosophical basis, they're on side with this anyway, aren't they? Oh, I think that's, that's broadly the case. And but I also think that she's, you know, beginning to get a sense that, uh, and as she probably should, that her main issues are going to be come from from the direction of of the Conservative Party and from that part of the business community that that uh, believes that uh, government should remove itself, however gradually, but nonetheless remove itself from the economy. The mantra about a year or so ago, and I think you and I had this discussion when some of these packages were being introduced, and, and in some cases extended, of course, Professor, was, look at, uh, yeah, this is an awful lot of money, but, you know, this is a crisis situation. We'll worry about paying this back later on. Uh, are we at the stage right now with uh, Minister Freeland where it start to, it's, it's about time to start thinking about how we're going to get out of this hole? Oh, I think there's, I don't think there's any doubt that she, her mind is focused on that pivot. She, that's, that's where they're heading. As I said, they're smart enough to realize that something real bad could come out of nowhere, and so you don't want to overcommit too early. And uh, I think Om Omicron has them worried for that reason. What about the uh, the inflation aspect? And let's talk about this. And I think, as you mentioned, Professor, there's, there's consensus by just about everybody, except I guess one or two people in the Conservative Caucus, that this is a global problem. It's not a uniquely Canadian problem at all. But how much can we do as, as a Canadian government uh, to try to, to curtail this or at least mitigate the impact here in Canada? Are there measures that are available right now that uh, the opposition may press the government to look into? I, I think the reality is, uh, set aside whatever words of support might be forthcoming when she appears before the committee, reality is we just don't have a lot of ability to control inflation or to drive down inflation on our own. We're a relatively small economy, but we're also a very open economy. So that really limits the range of choice that we have. I don't think anybody's naive to simply say, look, let's just go and, and, and let it fix itself. I mean, there are some issues here, supply chain and others, which are certainly having an impact on this. But is there a concern or a feeling right now, Professor, that, that as some of those issues are resolved, if they start making products and if we can start getting them to market in a timely fashion like we used to, that a lot of these may start to, to, to fend for themselves and they start to, to mend themselves? Well, I, I think what we'll see is if, if as you say, uh, matters continue to proceed, inflation continues to if, you know, stay high, if not go higher, you know, the only option they have available, of course, is to begin to play around with interest rates. 
as I said, that's that's a relatively minor tool in the toolbox. But I wouldn't be surprised if if in fact Canada, in fact I, I expect Canada will move sooner than the Americans, for example, in terms of raising rates. But there's a concern about that too, and the impact that that could have, isn't there? Well, I think very minor because you know rates are so low uh, that uh, you know going forward the sense is everyone has to expect it, and you know there is some some increasing strength in the labor market, and the expectation that. Uh, uh, employees have will have some ability in terms of raising wages to offset interest rate increases. One quick sidebar issue here uh, as we head into another week on, on Parliament Hill, and we should mention, by the way, that there's only two more weeks until they, these guys go for their Christmas break, so I, I know there's a, a desire here to try to get something passed, and I guess the aid bill is going to be one of them. But Aaron O'Toole, as you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, Professor, has his own problems with his, his own caucus these days. Uh, he's pushed back an awful lot on that, as we know. Uh, Senator Butters, of course, got booted out of the caucus. Uh, we understand now that she's not even been allowed on any of the Senate committees. The, the Conservatives did not uh, choose to put her on any of those. Uh, are O'Toole's leadership problems behind him now? Or are we focused more on what's going on? In other words, are they getting down to work now instead of the politics? No, I, I think what we've seen happen is, is uh, Leader O'Toole has communicated to his caucus that he will not go quietly. If anyone wants to take him on, they're going to have to prepare for a drawn-out fight. And he is basically saying he's going to flush out those who oppose him, bring them into the public eye, and he believes he has the support of of enough members of caucus to then deal with them. So I expect uh, what you'll see happen is that he, he has indicated he's not going to go. He's going to stay. He believes he's the leader for the time, and he's he's not going to be altered from that. And I know there are some people, even in the Conservative caucus, that are saying, well, yeah, okay, Mr. O'Toole, if you're that confident that you've got the support, go ahead and let the leadership review take place. I mean, what have you got to lose? I, I don't think he's, he's going to walk onto that thin ice, is he? No, unlikely. He knows that to do that would then to simply divert public attention from everything else except the upcoming leadership review. So I think by, no, he will not, he will see that as a sign of weakness if he were to uh, concede that, okay, let's let's move it up and let's now be consumed for the next four or five months by whispers in the hallways about who is leading, who should lead, uh, who's against, who's for. Well, we're going to be watching with great interest over the next couple of weeks, especially to see just how productive they're going to be. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this, Professor. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Professor Wayne Petrosi from uh, Ryerson University. Uh, the Bill Kelly Show continues. CFPL London, CHML Hamilton. Uh, another issue uh, that not the Finance Committee is going to have to deal with, but the Canadian government is going to have to deal with, is what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, Canada, the United States, and Britain should jointly and swiftly provide military support to Ukraine and it stands off with Russia. That, according to Ukraine's defense minister, uh, warning that uh, steps to deter Russian uh, President Vladimir Putin from invading are necessary now, because, in his words, it will be too late if we wait too much longer. Joining us to talk about this uh, is uh, Ora Braun, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the, the cry has gone out. This is really a direct, I, I guess, plea uh, from Ukraine to uh, the three big stations in NATO here, the United States, Britain, and Canada, to step up truth movements and a number of other military things. Uh, is this a valid request? Is, is this a, a, a sense here, Professor, that uh, that Russia is serious here and that, that there could be something happening? This is a very dangerous time. All intelligence reports that have been made public indicate that Russia has been massing vast numbers of troops on the borders of Ukraine. And it is not only large numbers, but they have the capacity to project force. So they have armored forces. They have the intelligence units deployed fully. They are in a position where they can begin an operation from a standing start. And that is very, very dangerous. And Russia has invaded Ukraine openly before. It has illegally annexed Crimea. It is supporting the separatist groups in eastern Ukraine, Donbass. And the danger here is not so much that 
Putin will necessarily, that is, Vladimir Putin will necessarily order an invasion as part of our larger plan. But there could be mistakes. There could be temptations. And so Ukraine is in a desperate situation. By themselves, they certainly are not powerful enough to take on Russia, which has military forces that are vastly larger, far more capable. But Ukraine has been provided with assurance by Western countries that uh, their territorial integrity would be respected. Only this past week, the Secretary of State of the United States, Anthony Blinken, basically reported in more elaborate terms what President Biden had promised. He said that the U.S. is unwavering in its commitment to make Ukraine territory safe, that uh, they are committed to Ukrainian territorial integrity, to sovereignty, and to independence. Canada is a member of NATO, so the question is, what are we prepared to do? Well, and that's what the Ukraine, I guess, foreign minister is asking, isn't it, Professor? He says, essentially, uh, he says, I want to see troops. And he says, I want them right where the Russians can see them, as, and that's going to act as a deterrent. And, and as you know, uh, Putin has said, you, you, if I see those troops, that's crossing the line, and, and we're going to have to react. So th- th- this looks like a standoff here. It's even worse than that. Uh, Vladimir Putin didn't just say, look, if I see troops uh, in Ukraine, he said that, I want a commitment, that is, Russia wants a commitment that NATO will not accept Ukraine for membership. In other words, Moscow is saying that they have a right to a veto. That they can tell a country, a neighboring state, of 43, 44 million people, that they do not have the same rights as other countries to make a decision what alliance they would join, what association they would become a member of. That is another way of infringing in a central fashion into the sovereignty of Ukraine. So it is not even an actual deployment of troops, but just setting into motion a process of possible membership, which could take many, many years. Russia is telling us that that would be a red line. And that is the kind of hegemony that Russia is trying to exercise that goes back to the Cold War, to the Soviet Union. But Russia is not the Soviet Union. Russia has pretensions of being a superpower. It is not, except for nuclear weapons. They claim that they are a kind of independent, great global power, but they really are not. They do not have the economy. They have deep problems at home. And often, Mr. Putin has tried to solve those problems by engaging in some kind of foreign adventure. But at the same time, we do need to understand that even though Mr. Putin has been ruthless, he has not been reckless. That is, he has carefully calculated what he can get away with. He was able to get away with an invasion of parts of Georgia and holding on to them informally. He has been able to invade Ukraine through hybrid means and has annexed uh, Crimea, and so far he has got away with it. So the message that we need to send, whether it is through a variety of means that we use or direct military force, which is not likely that we'd send actual combat uh, combat troops to Ukraine because they're not a member of NATO, uh, that we need to send an unambiguous signal that the cost will be so severe for Russia that any benefits they may gain will be far outweighed by the cost that they have to pay. And, and there's a consequence to this. I, I've got about a minute left here, but the other side of this coin, of course, is even if Canada and the U.S. and, and the U.K. were to do this, and there's no guarantee that that's going to happen at this stage, a couple of the other partners in NATO, specifically Germany and France, are a little hesitant about this because they do business with Russia. They absolutely do. And uh, just as uh, we are looking at Russia exercising enormous pressure on Ukraine, You have Germany, which is the largest economy in Europe, pushing for the completion of a huge energy pipeline, Mm -hmm. hydrocarbons, which is coming from Russia and which would increase Russian leverage. And they have not hesitated to use in the past in Eastern Europe, which they could use on Western Europe. So it, it is really contradictory. And this is why the West needs to coordinate 
a response that is effective. The Europeans have to come on board. They cannot just seek to make profits while the United States is supposed to be there to protect, uh, to just provide protection. We'll be watching with great interest to see just how this unfolds. As you mentioned, uh, President Biden expected to make an announcement sometime this week, too. Professor, as always, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Take care. Professor Earl Braun from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's going on in the workplace. And the, the pandemic has just messed everything up. We know that uh, because of the lockdowns, the impact it's had on the economy. And, and we're all trying to get back on our feet. We're all trying to do what we can for this. Uh, but we've got a problem, and the, the latest numbers we saw over the weekend are indicating uh, that it's not going away anytime soon. And that basically meaning unemployment numbers are down. Uh, employers are saying, hey, I'm trying to open my business up again. I can't get enough people to work. And it's 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 becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Uh, I want to talk about some possible solutions and how government and business can work together uh, to try to, to solve some of these concerns. And, and these are two major concerns among many that uh, businesses are looking at now to uh, try to get involved in this economic recovery. And joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Leah Nord. Leah is the Senior Director of Workplace Strategies and Inclusive Growth for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Leah, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Some interesting stuff uh, that, that I want to get into here, but let's first of all talk about uh, the employee shortage. I, I as they say in the biz, I don't know if anybody saw this coming. I mean, there was, a, I think, a line of thinking about a year ago that said, you know what, when we're going to get the vaccine, people are going to get vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go back out of our houses. We've got all this money that we haven't spent for a year. And we're going to go and just bring the economy back up. Uh, it's not working out that way, is it? No, unfortunately. And, and Friday, we did have some good, and I would almost say very good news from the job numbers, right, yeah. from the employee side, right? And we can talk about those. And every, you know, we're done with the pandemic, right? A lot of people we want to, you know, be over it and move on. And, and a lot of people are praising those numbers and it is good news, but it's not the only part of the story, right? If you take a look at the big picture, it's exactly what you said. We've got a million vacancies in this country uh, right now. And that is even more than we had pre-pandemic. If anyone would, you know, we thought we were going to get through this and move on. But that is, you know, it's across sectors. It's across the country. And every, you know, size of business is affected by this. And it, it is highly problematic. And we've talked uh, about the influence mm -hmm. of the pandemic, and and we talked with uh, you know Perrin Beatty, of course, from the Canadian Chamber a number of times mm -hmm. about this, and 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 you guys really put your finger on this. I mean, what the pandemic has done, it didn't create this shortage; it yeah. exacerbated an existing problem. I mean, we've had a, a skills uh, shortage here, a skilled labor shortage in this country mm -hmm. for quite some time. Uh, that's still there; it's not getting any better. But even unskilled positions right now, people are having f trouble yeah. finding positions. I think I, the classic story I told my listeners about, I think this is about three weeks ago, uh, a restaurant in Vancouver, actually, uh, they needed a dishwasher and they actually had to advertise. And I think it was like $50,000 plus full benefit package, mm -hmm. which is not usually uh, what somebody who washes dishes in the back of a restaurant would be paid. But they said, we, we got to do something. And, and this yeah. is really putting employers in a very precarious position, isn't it? Yeah, and this affects all Canadians as well. Using the example you uh, mentioned, you know, you can talk about improving wages and these low wage, you know, positions. And, and that's one conversation to have. But if it's artificially and arbitrarily raising wages to attract workers, this is, you know, those costs have to get passed on and they've got inflationary, you know, implications and pressures. And that actually affects all Canadians, right? And, and yep. this vacancy part does as well, because if you don't, you know, we need to be running on full economic engine steam, right? And the number one issue, we've got lots of issues in small business and business across this country, supply chains, you know, cost of inputs, but labor shortage is mean they can't you know they can't grow they can't even perform to the full ability and that has really big implications for economic growth and 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 you know it's you're right you're absolutely right we have to connect the dots here yeah. uh, and talk about this and and you know yeah I, i'd like everybody to, to make fifty thousand dollars plus and you know depending on the job even if skilled or unskilled and i'm not trying to be flippant about that but as you say when you artificially raise wages like that you're causing inflation i mean that's economics 101 and we already know that we're dealing with an inflation problem. It's not a Canadian-only problem. It's a global problem because it's not just Canada that's facing some of the concerns you've just mentioned here. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's what, you know, it, it, it affects all of us at the end of the day. And again, it, I'm not trying to be flippant either. We can have some meaningful discussions, but what's, you know, this upward pressure on, on, on wages is, is concerning. And we do, you know, so there's an inflation aspect, there's an economic growth aspect, but I, you know, there's also an opportunity aspect here, right? We talk about, you know, our new economy, a green economy. Let's take a look at, you know, where we are, where we need to go. And, you know, it is unfortunate that we still have a million, you know, 1.2 million unemployed in this country, but we've got possibilities, right? Let's, let's, let's do this skills mismatch we've been talking about for a long time. Let's, let's do it in a meaningful way. Let's, let's see the opportunity and, and move this forward. Do we have any idea when you talk about that 1.2 million that are unemployed right now? Uh, and, and as you say, you, you juxtapose that with the openings yeah. that are available to, to try to marry these two because we've had bad unemployment in the past. And, and sadly, those were circumstances where there were people walking around saying, I can't find work anywhere. I'm knocking on doors, you know, for eight hours a day and I can't find work. There's work out there right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is it is it the, the benefit packages? Is it the, mm-hmm. uh, the CERB packages and things like that that are making people reticent to get involved? So this is the classic jobs without people, people without jobs, yeah. right? Yeah. But but what we have to do, and this is, you know, it isn't it isn't one thing, first of all. There's no like single problem and single bullet solution. But having said that, what it's exactly what you say. We have to dig below these numbers. What is the problem, right? I think, you know. The, the the benefits to individuals have ended. Uh, we've seen a big push here in the in the workforce last month and, and we'll see if if that you know continues that trend. but that's not the only thing at play, right? And that's what we need to understand. We might have you know people with with the skills and what it is is in, you know somehow they're not getting to the jobs. It's a navigation issue. We do have a big problem with this country in labor mobility. You know, we've got people, you know, the classic people in the East or people in the West or us in the middle who who have the skills, but the jobs are located elsewhere. That's that's one thing. But, you know, if this is an issue of navigation and we just have to match people better, or do we have to upskill and reskill and take a look at this? This is this is what we we have to dig below those numbers to find out what's wrong in order to find the solutions, right? That's we have to define the problems in order to get get to the solutions part of this. Let's let's talk a bit about the the influence of the pandemic and and you know the elephant in the room here is is the vaccination program. And there was a great uptake on that initially, of course, here in Canada. It took a little while to get supply up, and we found out that was kind of a blessing in disguise because the longer we waited between doses actually made ours more effective. And that's that's a good news story. We're there. I get that. But And a number of companies, uh, to try to encourage vaccination, as you know, a number of your members uh, said, okay, a mandatory vaccination program. And, and you know, we've had, we've had hospital boards and others uh, in the private sector and the public sector, especially in the public sector, that have said, yeah, mandatory vaccinations. You're not double vaccinated. You can't come to work. That's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is that impacting those numbers right now? Because there are some people that just say, I'm not going to get vaccinated. And uh, and if you lay me off, you lay me off. That's all there is to it. Yeah. And again, this is, a, this is you know, a bit of a, a gray area as well. Uh, we are seeing, you know, there's the example in Quebec where they did have to walk back the, the mandatory yeah. vaccinations because of the labor shortages. I would say, you know, across the country, we have good vaccination rates, higher than than most, you know, I was looking at the numbers in Europe this morning, higher than most European countries, but we can still do better. And it's, you know, that that carrot approach of trying to encourage it without forcing it is is fantastic. But we're we're looking, you know, this will be another, you know, one of those knockoff effects if people don't have to get vaccinated because of for this reason, right? Because of the labor shortages and and concerns that that you just have to bring in whoever you can, however you can. That that that's not a great approach. But the other side of that coin is if if a company A says, okay, you know what, we're not going to enforce mandatory vaccinations. It's just not working for us. What does that message does that send to the employees of that company that said, well, well, wait a second. I don't think I feel safe going to work now because I don't know if the person that I'm working beside or working with has been vaccinated or not. I'm, I'm putting myself at risk. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. You're damned if you right? do, damned if you don't here, don't you? Rightly. Yeah. And so, you know, if we're not dealing with enough as employers, right, you know, yeah. it's, it's grappling with all of this. 
these issues because it is those who have right and and have you know gone forward and what if you're not comfortable turning to the office like you know you can have testing protocols and the rest in place please don't get me wrong right but but the this is just an extra layer of consideration and, and complication and you know we always refer to all these drips in the bucket right and you can just hear that constant pinging of the drips in the bucket here and and here's another one for folks right as we try and return to normal or recovery and all of this there's there's just constant you know barriers and obstacles in the way all right but what i love about dealing with the canadian chamber of commerce is that you guys talk about the situations and here are the problems and here are the challenges that are facing us uh, but you also talk about solutions uh, and and we're desperately in need of solutions at this point, Leah. Uh, and government's got to play a role in this. Uh, certainly, the the private sector has to play a role in this as well. Where is the common ground here? Where's that discussion? And 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 what can be on the table here to try to mitigate this? Because the economy's uh, and, not going to get better until these get addressed. Yeah, no, absolutely. But there again, there's the opportunity and there's the possibility, right? And we've always said that. I mean, government. You know, I, I sit here in Ottawa, so at the federal level, right, or at the national level, really have a convening role in power. And so much of this, there's so many players. Like if we look at the skills place, for example, right, you've got provinces, you've got, you know, the national government, you've got businesses, you've got, you know, education and training institutions. But bringing us all together is, is a very strong role they can play to start, you know, having the discussions and addressing the issues. I think there's more commonalities than there are differences. So we all have, to, you know, we might all be in different boats, but start rowing in the same direction. Well, well, because when you look at, and I know we've all talked about supply and demand, and I think a lot mm -hmm. of us have a much better understanding of that right now. And we know there's a supply issue. The demand is increased. Uh, that was the one part of the equation they predicted that actually did happen. Yeah. Uh, we do <laughs> want to spend our money. Uh, there's, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the variety of products that we want, especially heading into the holiday season is not there. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't shop. It means that there's going to be some changes to that. But the other element of this that not a whole lot of people talk about is to be able to, to satisfy that demand and that supply, uh, you've got to have productivity, which means you've got to get people back to full employment. You've got to get companies that used to have 500 employees have at least those 500 back there uh, because everybody ramped down their production when the pandemic started and they haven't really been able to do it yet. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. fine for governments to say, okay, we want to deal with inflation. We want to deal with the supply and demand chain. But if they don't increase productivity or give the climate yeah. uh, in this country to increase productivity, uh, we're, we're not going to get there. You know what? We, well, we need everything in this country. But, you know, we also need a lot. We don't have truck drivers, right? We have a, yeah. a chronic shortage right now. And the numbers are just going to get worse and worse and worse. And that's, you know, the, these... I think you have to name it first or talk about it in order to be able to address it, right? And and it's at all parts in the supply chains and all parts in productivity. But but in that, there's also the opportunity to overcome. We really believe that. So, does government understand the 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 magnitude of this problem? I mean, they see the end result of it. I mean, they see the numbers as you and I do, and and as you referenced, you know, they're looking encouraging. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there seem to be some green shoots that the economic recovery is happening. Uh, but it's it's going to stall until they understand that, that there's a much more uh, broad-based approach that they're going to have to take here. And and I and by the way, I want to reiterate the point I just made a second ago. And I know you this is right out of your, your mantra as well. Uh, governments don't create jobs, except government jobs. Uh, they create the climate for jobs yeah. uh, to to prosper, and and that's what we're looking for for the government. Whether it's going to be pandemic aid programs, you know, we can argue whether that's going to be effective, but there have to be some long-term supports here for businesses. Uh, to get back on their feet. And I think that's what we're looking for from the federal government, especially. Yes, and they have done well, and they, you know, with the, the hardest hit sectors and that those supports continue, Bill, but we still have to keep our eye on on that as well and, and going forward and support will be needed, right? This is what we call is the classic demand side of the workforce, right? The the employers as well. And 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 we, you know, the government is key to this, as you say, to create the environment that creates the jobs. But at the end of the day, it's the businesses that do. You know, small and medium-sized businesses are the economic engines of this country. And I can give you, you know, all sorts of data about how, you know, they create the majority of jobs in the country and they need to be supported in order not only to create them, but to fill them as well. But you've got a lot of members right now in those small businesses uh, that are, burdened with debt now. I mean, you know, some of the rent relief packages, for instance, that the Ontario government came up with and said, look, you can defer this, you can defer that. Uh, that's just deferring to debt. I mean, you still have mm -hmm. to pay that back. 
is there a discussion going on about relief? And I mean, I, I know some jurisdictions, Leah, have gone to the point of actually uh, forgiving some of that debt and simply say, look, I know what we got, but let's, let's, in the sake of getting mm-hmm. everybody back to work, let's just move on. Okay. Let's wipe the slate clean and, and move on from there. Uh, that would be a big help. I know that it's, it's a, a huge decision if a government were to make a decision like that, but that's the kind of dramatic and bold action I think that, that we're looking for here to try to help small businesses uh, because they're they're in much deeper situation right now. And the chances for a, a rapid economic recovery are, are going to be a lot more problematic for these people until they get those supports, that foundation. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we've asked for even, you know, relief on the interest, right? That would be a, a signal as well. And, and I think even going forward, if you, you've nailed it, right, our, our businesses are, are behind and every month that goes on, right, this is deferred and deferred and deferred and we're grateful for it, but it adds up, right? So they're already behind the eight ball. So maybe looking forward to, we, we, we've got to be, you know, as we go back into this, you know, more normal and it's this long middle right now, but but maybe looking at, you know, some of the things that are coming down the pipeline here as well, right? Not to increase the burden as well, right? All of these little drips in the bucket, right? We're looking at, you know, increases in sick leave and and payroll taxes. And and these things in of themselves might be good or valued, right? But but it's all of these drips that keep adding and adding and adding up. Um, you know, really taking, you know, a look at the big picture to support businesses and how we can get them moving forward. Those who are still open have come this far, right? We, we've got to help them through. Well, and, and the big guys can take the hit. I mean, I don't, they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but he says, here, I'll take an economic hit, sure. You know, a case in point, I was just talking to some friends of mine up in the, the Blue Mountains ski area here in, in this part of Ontario, and, and they were opening their season, I think it's next week or something. Uh, and they said, well, I hope, you know, they, I said, the big guy, I said, the people that own the resort, it's a multi, it's an international company. They're doing fine. Uh, they're not going to bankrupt. I'm worried about the small shops in the villages and places like mm-hmm. that. And same uh, all over the, it's the small businesses that are really being impacted by this. Uh, and they're the ones that are right now look, really relying on the government at, at all levels, by the way. Uh, when it comes to situations like this. And and I think that's one of the messages that, that you at the Canadian Chamber have always talked about, is there have to be all three levels of support here. Because uh, mm-hmm. even municipal governments can have a role to play in in, in small business. And, and as you say, granting them relief, whether it's property taxes, any number mm-hmm. of different things, services, there's all, they, they should all be looking at their books right now and say, what can we do here? Absolutely. And those little things make a difference, right? Even if you're not going to reverse decisions, maybe we should start by not adding them, right? And then seeing realistically, because I know what it means for bottom lines for government as well, but you've got to take a look at the longer term picture, right? And the the overall health and economic well-being of the country and communities and localities as well. Quick point. I've got about a minute left here. How, what's the attitude of your members right now? Are they bullish? Are they apprehensive about the future? Yeah, I would say it's a roller coaster, right? We think, you know, it's it's what we call the long middle right now, right? There's optimism. We've come this far. We've got that, you know, much further, you know, to go. But then, you know, it's all of the, you know, it's a new variant. It's it's trying to make rent every month. It's it's the holiday season, and we've got it. You know, we're supposed to be picking up, and we can't get our, you know, the work, you know, the the labor to help us, you know fill the orders or move the orders. So, so it's, it's, you know, they're tough. They've made it this far, but it, it, it is, it's, you know, day by day is what I would say. Absolutely. Well, just down the street from you there at uh, Parliament Hill, we're told there's going to be a, a, it was described to me as a robust meeting between the finance minister and the finance committee as they get back to work in Ottawa. And uh, hopefully things you've just talked about here are going to be part of that discussion. Uh, Leah, thank you so much for the great work that you at the Chamber are doing. And uh, we'll continue this conversation as we go down the road here. Thank you and have a great day. You too. Leonard, Senior Director of Workforce Strategies and inclusive growth for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.